I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which does a lot on climate, at least we think it does, we have with us John Larson, who is a non-resident senior associate with the Climate and Energy Program at CSIS. John, welcome to the podcast. You're also a noted energy expert. You're a director at the Rhodium Group. You worked at DOE, Department of Energy, for WRI. It's really a pleasure to have you here with us. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. When I opened this this discussion, I said, at least we think it does, because I hear conflicting reports every time I turn on the TV. What does the bill actually do? Sure. It's a great question. So I lead our U.S. energy research at an independent research firm called the Rhodium Group, and we've been looking at federal policy impacts for over a decade now in the United States, different level, you know, different stages and chapters in this long novel of U.S. climate action or lack thereof. And when we look at the IRA, the, the, the biggest part of the story is hundreds of billions of dollars in long-term tax incentives, tax credits for an array of clean energy technologies, some of which people on this podcast, you know, listeners to this podcast probably know well, like wind turbines and photovoltaic solar technology, battery storage, things like that. But it it even gets really personal because there's, aren't there tax credits for people who want to put in electric vehicle chargers in their house for, for solar, solarizing their house, things that you and I could potentially do. Yeah, there, there's there's support both in the, you know, I mean, you can get into like, where is this in the tax code? But in the personal, you know, income tax code, there's lots of incentives for installing energy efficient or electric equipment in your home to get rid of fossil fuel equipment. So if I want to switch out, say, a natural gas furnace for heat pumps or something like that, there is incentives in there to do so. You mentioned EV charging, same thing. UV car purchases is another opportunity there for individuals. And then on the corporate side, there's a lot of incentives, not just to build new wind and solar power plants, but also to build new manufacturing facilities that can onshore or expand domestic production capacity for a lot of clean energy technologies. And then I think a underappreciated component of this is there's a suite of what we call emerging clean technologies that uh, people have probably heard about in the news, but they are not anywhere close to the scale that like wind and solar or even electric vehicles are today. Things like clean hydrogen, what we call clean fuels, which can be a variety of different technologies, but ultimately, you know, non-fossil alternative drop-in fuels for aviation or for vehicles that uh, have a very low life cycle carbon footprint technologies like carbon capture that actually capture CO2 from power plants, smokestacks or factory stacks and keep it safely stored underground. So, you know, the key thing about climate change is all the emissions we're putting into the air. So this would avoid so those kinds of emissions. And then there's one other kind of area that, again, is underappreciated, which is there's a lot of investment in rural and agricultural activities that can actually reduce carbon, both in helping rural communities adjust to a lower, lower carbon energy future, but also helping farmers and foresters help soak up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it in soils and in trees. So there, there's a vast array of spending and tax credits in here that, that kind of 
add up to that total uh, level of impact. And the, the, what's critical about that is it touches on every single sector of the economy in some way. Usually when people have talked about like wind and solar tax credits, you're really just talking about the power sector. And that's important. It's one of the big three emitting sectors. But the interesting thing about the IRA is that it actually does have touch points across all the major emitting parts of the energy system. So, John, critics have said, or I've heard critics say, that, you know, the bill doesn't do anything, A, it doesn't do anything right away, and B, the only people this really impacts are, you know, people who are relatively well off who can afford to put solar in their house, for instance. Do you put any stock in that? So... The first thing I'd say is, you know, the, the package of programs goes up over 10 years. That's a long time frame. And a lot of what the package ultimately will do from our analysis is long-term scale up of clean energy deployment, right? And that can't happen overnight inherently. There's only so much solar and wind we can install in a year right now in the United States. There's only so much carbon capture that can get put in place based on the supply chains that exist today. But what's really different about this package is that 10-year policy certainty so that industries and investors actually can say, okay, well, if I put money into this new space today, it's going to be expanding over time, right? Like I know what I'm going to get for an incentive in 2029. So if I make an investment now, I can capitalize on that. And we do see most of the benefits here really starting to accrue in the later part of the 2020s, not immediately from an emissions perspective. But it does take time to turn the energy system around from its dependence on fossil fuels. The other point around, you're right, a lot of these programs, you know, tax credits historically have been more available for, you know, if you don't have a tax liability, these tax credits aren't going to be as useful to you, right? But what we found is when you look at the entire total impact of the entire package, on average, every American household is going to save money up to about $112 per household on average by 2030. And that's the sum total of all the programs that are like helping some people save a lot. Then that's spread out over the average. But then also reduced energy demand overall is going to lower energy bills for everybody. So there is a tangible impact on average, not just for those who take full advantage of the opportunities. So $112, I, I'm t I take it per year. That's right. Doesn't yeah. sound like a lot, but when you average it over the population of the United States, it's actually quite high. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tens of billions when you talk in savings in absolute terms. Absolutely. And that could be amplified depending on what other additional actions, you know, the administration takes to meet its climate targets beyond that. Because I think a, another, another point that I've heard is, oh, well, you can't, you know, this isn't going to actually fundamentally change the emissions trajectory of the United States. And we find that's not the case at all, that this actually does make a meaningful dent in emissions by 2030. We take a, the way we do our projections, we kind of consider a, a range of different market sensitivities. So like a world with higher fossil fuel prices, a world with lower fossil fuel prices, cheaper technology, more expensive technology, higher growth, lower growth anyway. But when you look at it all, the IRA could get emissions down to like 32 to 42 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And that's compared to a no IRA world, which is 24 to 35. Right. So at a minimum here, you're talking about like an eight percentage point shift in the outcome, thanks to the IRA and as much as a 10 percentage point shift. And that is, in our view, this is the single biggest action the federal government's taken 
on climate change with like one single move as long as we've been paying attention. So that that's a that's a big step. So it truly is historic. Yeah. You know, we said in our research note on this topic that, you know, the first the first hearing on this was in 1988 with James Hansen. That's kind of famous when he was like, look, like things are going to get sketchy and hot and not good and we need to do something about it. 34 years later, we finally actually have a bill that makes a meaningful dent. And, you know, the Biden administration's target is 50 to 52 percent. Right. So I'll know, you know, our best case scenario here is 42. So not 50. But I think what's also significant and underappreciated is these tax credits make any future action easier. If I'm a state and I'm on the edge about do we do if I'm a governor and I want to, like, push the envelope on clean energy deployment in my state or something like that, it will now cost less to pursue that pathway because the federal government is subsidizing everything that I would need to, to make that happen. If I want to attract more of that investment to my state, I could make more you know, state-specific incentives that could be super helpful there. Same thing with the federal government. If EPA does follow through on its promise to regulate power plant greenhouse gas emissions next year, you know, all of the technologies they will need to consider to reduce emissions at those fossil power plants are now incentivized in some way in the, in the bill. And so the cost of any future regulation will be lower. Um, and that could either mean it's politically easier to pursue it, or maybe it's easier to be more ambitious with that pathway. And you could even make the same case about Congress. Should Congress want to do more action on climate in the near future, or, you know, next Congress, all of those actions will now be easier to pursue because there's all this new clean energy incentives that may lower the cost of any next step. You know, of course, politically, it might become harder if the makeup of the Congress changes after yeah. the midterms. But I take your point. And let me ask to follow up on that point. There's been reports in recent days about the glaciers melting at an alarming rate. Sea levels will rise as a result of that. Does this bill actually start to reverse some of that? Can it reverse some of that? Or does it need to be a much wider global effort? To truly slow down the impacts of climate change, we need global action. And this, this bill alone will not catalyze all of that global action. But what it does do from a global perspective, it does. This is one of the first times where a U.S. administration has made a global commitment for greenhouse gas reductions and has now taken tangible policy steps to follow through on that commitment. That is so, so put it put this in a against a scenario where the IRA did not pass, you know, totally falls apart. Right. Then there would be a lot of shrugged shoulders, rolled eyes at the, at the global level being like, OK, well, the U.S. just really can't deliver at all, not even try. Right. So any next set of action anybody's talking about, you know, the world's historically largest emitter is not to be taken seriously, right? This is now different, right? This is a new world where actually, you know, the Biden, President Biden has been able to make progress on the legislative front. Negotiators and departments of state or ministries in major emitting economies around the world, they pay attention to U.S. legislative action and politics. They understand how the process works. And this is going to send a pretty strong signal that, that the U.S. actually is capable of taking steps to follow through on its commitments. And again, not done yet, but this is the first big step. And I think that will help maintain and expand U.S. credibility for any next round of conversations and negotiations on global emission reductions. And that should help catalyze more action. I think one of the things that a lot of people are having a hard time wrapping their head around is that everybody you know, seems to have an opinion on climate change, but the conventional wisdom 
is, is that it's real and that you actually have science that shows, like I said before, the, the glaciers in Antarctica are, are melting. But when you then have an administration pass a bill like this, sign it into law that, you know, or he will sign it into law that goes forward to start to address this as we've been the world's greatest emitter. Why doesn't it get more media coverage? Why aren't people talking about it more? I think people are spending, you know, just the bare minimum. We, we always talk about the world's getting hotter. The temperatures are horrible. The hurricanes, you know, we're coming up on hurricane season and one of my sons goes to Tulane in New Orleans, so where I went, so we're acutely aware of hurricanes. Why aren't more people talking about how great this is and how we can build on this? I don't know. There's a, it's a good question. There's a lot going on here. I mean, some of this is, you know, we didn't talk about the fact yet. We've talked about all the things that do reduce emissions. There are, there are requirements for new, say, public land lease sales in the bill for oil and gas development. And so I think some people have said that's that's counterproductive. That's a bridge too far. If we're trying to solve climate change, why are we doing this? And I think some of the reaction to like key components of the package are causing a little bit of dissonance and maybe less celebration than one would expect, given you know the context you just described. But I think as folks dive deeper into the bill and what it ultimately can accomplish, and look at more research, you know we're. Not, People are still just getting their arms around what this is really going to do to the energy system. I think people will come around and see that there's, there's even more upside here than people appreciate. Uh, one quick example, in our final analysis, which we released last Friday, as soon as the House passed the bill, we actually find that the sum impact of the bill will actually lead to no change in petroleum production uh, in 2030 compared to no bill, and actually a decline in natural gas production relative to a world with no bill, even with full representation of all those leasing sales. And the, and why is that? That seems that seems counterintuitive. It's because all the clean energy investments drive down demand for fossil fuel in such a substantial way that there's just less need to produce oil and gas in America. So even if you do do some of those new lease sales and they do get produced, it's just going to displace production somewhere else in the energy system like the Permian Basin, where there's no federal land, for example, or at least not in Texas. And, and when you add that all up, you actually see a, a step forward in the decline of fossil fuel production in America um, from this package in a way that I think some, some of its current critics don't fully appreciate. What can the administration and future administrations perhaps do to really continue to address this and build on this act? Yeah, I think there's a few things here worth diving into. So the first thing is we find that up to 75% of all the emission reductions from the bill happen in the electric power sector. Historically, electric power has been the biggest emitting sector. So that's good news that like most of the action is happening there. In the best kind of market scenario, we could be up to 81% clean generation by 2030. Currently, the sector is around 40. So like doubling the total amount of clean generation in, in the United States and before the end of the decade, which is a huge shift. So that says to me that action in the electric power sector by the administration is going to be important for kind of locking in and reinforcing those outcomes. But it's not going to be the growth, you know, where you bring out huge new chunk of emission reductions above and beyond what IRA can do. Doesn't mean you shouldn't push in that space, but it's it's going to be less, you know, less additive. And instead, where we see a lot of opportunity is, say, the transportation sector. So I think one 
well-reported aspect of the IRA is that there's uh, the EV tax credit regime is has been transformed to be more of a promotion for domestic content within electric vehicles. And currently there are there will be very few vehicles that qualify for the credit, at least in the next few years. That doesn't mean you couldn't sell more electric vehicles from other sources like Chinese batteries and things like that, which are currently not incentivized by the new EV tax credit. But you'll need some other mechanism to drive that deployment, right? So, so for example, one tried and true opportunity there is fuel economy standards, um, where EPA and um, the Department of Transportation could ramp up efficiency requirements, and increasingly, uh, all the equipment manufacturers are pushing more and more to electric. So you could actually make a case that well, we can be even more ambitious because everybody's already investing in this control technology, and uh, you may be able to get more EVs onto the road above and beyond what the IRA would do, and that would drive some real emission reductions uh, fairly quickly. Another place to look is buildings. The emission reduction programs in the IRA have been kind of well-publicized, but you know a lot of people don't make replacement choices for their fossil fuel devices in their buildings based on tax credits and an interest in solving climate change. They want, if their furnace breaks in January, they're going to want heat, right, ASAP. And so finding ways to expand the technology offerings and even like workforce development, just having people ready to go to be like, look, now's a great time for heat pumps. We can do it tomorrow, you know, is going to be another area that I think is going to like really catalyze additional emission reductions above and beyond what's already in the bill. And one last thing that I think it's is, again, underappreciated, but I think it's going to be back, back to your like, you know, making up for lost time, carbon dioxide removal both in like soils and forests, like I was talking about, but also in new giant machines that take CO2 out of the air and put it underground and kind of literally undo, you know, the opposite of emissions. There are big incentives in the IRA for deployment of that kind of technology and just more and more investment or programs that can catalyze more companies and startups in this space and support them for kind of perfecting that technology and really bringing down the costs fast is going to be a huge driver of deployment of that technology into the 2030s. And if you don't start making those investments now, you won't be ready for those that kind of scale up. So I think that's another place to look. And are you feeling like this bill really has some momentum in terms of what industry is going to do, in terms of what personal choices people are going to make? I mean, one of the things that you know we're always talking about here in Washington is everybody wants an EV, an electric vehicle, but there's a shortage of them and they're hard to get and they're expensive and, you know, the, the maintenance on them isn't always so great. And but do you see that there's going to be real momentum from this bill towards personal and corporate decisions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. And I mean, I, I think in some ways this transition was already starting. This will just accelerate it. And one example of that before the IRA was passed or even fully like fleshed out. You know, you had Ford saying they 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 had sales targets of six hundred thousand electric vehicles by twenty twenty four and two million by twenty twenty six. And just for reference, they've they've done about a hundred thousand this year. You know, so and that's one equipment manufacturer with you know which traditionally has not invested in this space at all, right? And then GM has similar targets, and Hyundai and Kia have similar targets. And so now I think. The IRA is going to help make, say, consumers say, hey, now I can just, it makes it much easier to get that charger in my garage and now I can accommodate an electric vehicle. And even if the vehicle doesn't get the new tax credit, it should help 
expand supply chains, again, there's like a battery production tax credit in the bill, for example, for electric vehicles that should help a lot of the, these OEMs meet their targets for sales and maybe even exceed them. And that just makes all of this clean technology more normal. And more and more consumers will just see that as the obvious choice, which right now it's still pretty exotic in many, many respects. John, the bill doesn't focus as much on infrastructure resilience as it does on emissions cutting solutions. Do you think infrastructure resilience needs to be addressed in future legislation? Yeah, so, so there's like two parts of that to my answer to that. So the first part is the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act passed last year, which some people call the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. That actually did have substantial investments in climate resilience for key categories of infrastructure, um, including like, you know, shoring up retaining walls and stuff near where sea level is rising and things like that for key highways. And so there was certainly some investment already baked in through that legislation. Now, having said that, if anybody was keeping tangential score at home on Build Back Better versus the IRA, that there was about $555 billion in t- over 10 years in total climate spending and Build Back Better, and that got slimmed down to about $370 billion in the IRA. And mo- not all, but most of the difference was climate adaptation and resilience grants and investments. And there's a whole backstory, I'm sure, that I'm not plugged into as to why that 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 happened. But that just shows that like people did have aspirations for at least $150 billion more dollars in climate resilience and adaptation that didn't fi- make the final cut and I think will be another area to focus on in the future. I mean, it's, you know, there's already like increasing number of days where key neighborhoods in Miami are underwater just from high tide, like not even a weird weather day. Um, you're seeing that more and more in the Mid-Atlantic and other places. And that's just one impact of climate change. Never mind the like flash floods and stuff we see in the Midwest or the droughts we're seeing in the West. And, you know, I think that there will be increasing need to make those investments. And as climate change gets more and more tangible and in everybody's faces, I think there'll be clear political desire to pursue those supporting that stuff. Well, it's pretty incredible. If you spend any time in a coastal community, you realize how fragile the environment is and how, you know, much rising sea levels can impact people's homes, people's livelihoods, people's well-being, etc. It really is quite something when you're in a place like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up by the water and when I go back, it's always remarkable to think that, you know, first of all, things look a lot different than they did when I was a kid. And they're going to look even more different, not that too long into the future. And there's going to be an increasing need to, you know, and, and states are at the forefront at this, you know, for the most part, but they need support from the federal government to have the resources to tackle these issues. John, do you worry that some of this, some of the provisions in this climate bill could be rolled back before they even have any, any kind of meaningful impact? I mean, there's always that possibility with the way the federal system works. There is no chance, bef- you know, you'd need you'd need unified government again. Only that government is a government that doesn't care about dealing with climate change, um, which, you know, doesn't just depend on it's not just Republican or Democrat. It really depends on which Republican should the Republican be in charge. I, I should say that because there are plenty of Republicans that care about solving this problem. But uh, so there's always a risk there. But I, I look back at things like the Affordable Care Act and other big legislative achievements from prior administrations that uh, the when that unified government shift occurs, the new people in charge have a very hard time taking away these things because they're so popular. And 
especially in this context where a lot of these tax credits really support business investment. It's going to be hard to see, especially as even just the next few years, some of these incumbent clean energy industries growing, again, because of the certainty that all the tax credits provide. It's kind of hard to see them, you know, being okay with all these support, the support being taken away. And, and in particular, because this is underappreciated, but like just in the electric power sector, wind and solar, the best resources happen to be in red districts and red states, right? So, so if you were to reverse those tax credits, you are actually reducing the economic development prospects of the very places that these people would be representing, which seems very counterintuitive from a, having electoral sustainability. And, and so we'll, you know, I, I don't worry about it personally. I think, I think, again, for all the reasons I just said, I think things are going to be pretty durable, but there, there's a chance and, you know, it'll be interesting to see if and how that might play out. But it's a really good point. And, and, you know, and the point that industry is going to be making investments based on this law, this set of laws, very hard to overturn once individuals and, and businesses and communities have really made major investments. Yeah. And, and some of these technologies, I would even argue that are supported by the IRA, are not necessarily favorite technologies of the Democratic Party. You know, but they were important to getting the package over the finish line. And again, things like clean fuels, carbon capture, direct air capture, those have largely been enjoyed bipartisan support on the research and development side of things. So like if you want to go back even one more step beyond the behind the infrastructure bill, there was the Energy Act of 2020, which put new R&D programs in place and reauthorizations for all the technologies I just mentioned. Uh, and that was a bipartisan bill. I think it got 86 votes in the Senate, for example. So, so there are there are things in here that if if you had a unified kind of anti-climate regime in place down the road, there would be people within the Republican Party, presumably at that point, that would be very much in favor of keeping in the support for carbon capture or director capture and other things. And and so it's a little hard to see, you know, even though the the this package didn't get Republican votes this time around. There are things that Republicans care about that are supported by the IRA, and it would be unusual to see them kind of do a complete about face, given, again, what matters for investment in these uh, in these communities that these people represent. John, this is extremely helpful. Really appreciate your insight. And I feel like we've all learned a lot more about this as a result of this conversation with you. So thank you very much. Thanks again. It's great to be on, Andrew, and great to talk to you today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 